Good evening, Mrs. and Mr. America and all the ships at sea. This is the Weekly Curio Podcast, the podcast that attempts to smarten you up whether you like it or not. I'm Freak Show and Tell's Tom Britton. And I'm Jeff Wagg, curator of the College of Curiosity. And this week, as all weeks, we start with the first half of the puzzle. Well, you kind of started with a puzzle. Who was it that originally said that? Was that Edward R. Murrow? That's Ed, that's yeah. Good evening, Mr. and Mrs. America and all the ships at sea. Let's go to press. There you go. Well, there was your first puzzle. We gave you the answer. So here's one we won't give you the answer to. Which U.S. coin was the first one to have the dollar sign on it? That seems simple. It's not. We record our podcast in beautiful northern Chicago, Illinois. And this one we're recording just after April 1st, which is April Fool's Day. Almost all over the world. We'll put a link in the show notes to one of my favorite Wikipedia pages, which is always the origins of holidays because they are so complicated. April Fool's equally complicated. It could either come from a Roman Roman festival called Hilaria, a medieval feast of fools, or... The mix between the two of them, uh, one of them, the festival goers, calling the older festival goers fools for not moving to the new <laughs> yeah, date. Right. <laughs> so you still do hey, December 25th. Well, don't you know hilarious March 25th now? You fools. Yeah. <laughs> or it comes from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. Yeah. A mistranslation makes the readers think that he's talking about March 32nd, which is April 1st. <laughs> yes. And then Chanticleer is tricked by a fox on that day. Yeah. Or it comes from the French poet... I'm going to mess this up, but Eloy de Amerville. Sounds good to me. Uh, Poisson de Avril, yep. April Fools, or literally April Fish. And again, sort of a joke since he calls it April Fish instead of April Fool, it becomes a day. Just, There's a lot of weird. Just, yeah, that gets it. Yeah, so the last one, yeah. it could be a, a New Year's Day, March 25th. And again, the April Fools would be celebrating on the wrong day. And right, that's as the French and the English sort of blend together yeah. for a bit there before the many, 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 many wars that follow. <laughs> so I, I took French in high school, and one day we came into French class, and there was a fish on the guy's desk. And we said, hey, why is there a fish on your desk? And he said, bon, it is Poisson de Ville. <laughs> <laughs> no, he didn't actually the guy do the, from, He didn't do that. The guy from The Little Mermaid. <laughs> <laughs> the chef yeah. with the succulent little crab. <laughs> Yeah, no, I wish he had done that, but no, he didn't. And that was that was the, the April Fool's. Yeah, oh, yeah, right. So then, uh, so he explained the tradition was that uh, in French cultures, on April first, they would try to tape a paper fish onto people's back, and that would make them the April Fool, and you could laugh at them and stuff. I don't know why. Yeah, in the in the UK, it runs similar to here, although they have Hunt the Gauk Day. I saw that, uh, which is a, a Scots for a cuckoo or a foolish person. Yeah. That's a fun way to say Hunt the Gauk. Uh, Ireland entrusts the victim with an important letter to be given to a named person, and then the finally opened, it was send the fool further. <laughs> so you were then to continue uh, the quest. This, is, this yeah, World of Warcraft yes. played it yeah, live, I Yeah, think. right, right. <laughs> uh, so it's a grind. You're just farming <laughs> yeah. rep the entire time you live Take in Ireland. this letter to the other kingdom. Ireland has the oldest one. The oldest uh, jokes are played on the 13th day of the Persian New Year, which falls on April 1st or April 2nd. Mm-hmm. So if you travel to Iran, they might get you on the 2nd. Uh, celebrated as far back as 536 BC. Wow. It's called, and I'm going to butcher this, I apologize, apologize, Sizdabedar. Sounds good to me. Yeah. It's the oldest prank tradition in the world still alive today. Wow. So the oldest April Fool's are those Iranian April Fools? Yeah, they, they get created a lot of stuff. Actually, we'll get into something later on. That they you ever pulled a good prank? I never have. Well, 
so I don't really like April Fools um, because I, you know, we do these podcasts. We're in the business of giving people curious information, and April Fools messes that up completely because it's a whole day of stuff that is wrong. And it, it so here we are on April second recording this. If you look at Facebook today, it's still full of wrong stuff. Not that it isn't every day, but especially today. So I actually uh, I, I do a blog called The Daily Curio, and I did an April Fools edition, and most people thought it was real. That's the danger. I'll I'll take the counterpoint, though. I will say that setting aside a day to make you be skeptical might not be the worst thing. (laughs) That's a good point. Because it's the one day of the year I'm allowed to yell, virtually at least, you idiot, (laughs) it's full of moron day. And if I do that on on Facebook, on your anti-vaccination post or what have you, you're going to get offended, you're going to dig in, you're going to entrench, I'm not going to do anything. But if you fall for here in Chicago, we had Mayor Rahm Emanuel is going to close 25% of the bars and turn them into charter schools. Yeah, that'll work real well in Chicago. (laughs) Turn them into charter schools is what's funny. It's a big contentious point Uh here is his love of charter schools and the debate amongst both the liberal and conservatives on charter schools. Poor Rom positioned himself right in the middle. (laughs) Brilliant. (laughs) So that's how I sniffed it out. I'm like, wait a minute. Hang on a second. This doesn't sound right at all. And, And now I'm allowed to yell at you virtually and in a friendly manner. Yes. And that might not be the worst feeling because you can also, the mea culpas flow more quickly on April Fool's. You'll notice in the Facebook post further yeah. down where people go, oh, I fell for yeah. it. I'm such a sucker. Yeah, it's not as I big like a that sin. feeling. I like that feeling because then, yeah. yeah, maybe you'll change your position yeah. on other ideas. Well, somebody said, I, and I don't remember who, some, some skeptic person said, this is, to everybody else who's not a skeptic, April 1st is what it feels like every day of the year to us, because we see all this stuff, and we're like, no, that's not true. No, it's not true. And, you know, no one, everyone believes it on every other day. April Fool's is the only day that skeptics can actually share that experience with other people. We should do events. April Fool's. Walk a mile in our shoes. <laughs> that's right. That's not a bad idea. Now we bring you a shorter topic of discussion the, the cutting edge of science as they publish these papers, and oftentimes they then have to publish the retraction. Yes. It is the challenge of being a science fan. Uh, this is a PopSci article. A lot of them from PopSci this week, PopSci.com. Self-healing muscles grown in a lab and implanted in mice. Yes. That back half of the headline is the important part. We've been growing. We, yeah. me and my buddies. Yeah, we just grow them in the fridge. <laughs> The editorial, the royal we, my my people and I, have been growing, as as our sports fans think, we won the championships, we've solved the riddles of the universe. It's the same idea. Uh, uh, We have been growing muscles in a lab. Self-healing is a new thing. That's the big deal. And then applying them to any kind of living, particularly mice, that's where we like to go first, is with the mouse. Yep. There's a lot of reasons for that. Mice are good. They're, They're a good human analog, and we know their genome really well. This is, uh, according to Duke researcher Nanand Bursak, quote, it's the first time engineered muscle has been created that contracts as strongly as native neonatal skeletal muscle. And it's, that is a big deal. And, and what they did that was different is they've grown the muscle before, but this time they left spaces for stem cells to grow in, and that's where the healing comes from. Stem cells are what allows the muscle that's damaged to rebuild itself. And to progress beyond neonatal strength. Right. It doesn't do me any good to give you neonatal muscle yeah, in, right. into your leg as a damaged 23-year-old man. Yeah, muscle only grows if you exercise it, and when you exercise it, you're causing little tiny rips and tears. Now, that's normal, that's good, and when that grows, it gets strong and bigger, and that's how you turn in from a weak baby into a strong man, or woman, as the case may be. And now we're doing that in a lab. 
I mean, that's amazing. A day by day, if you want to, if you go, we'll put the link in the show notes, but you can see they have a video on the website of the vasculature in action, which particularly if you have more biology training than I, I found it fascinating mm-hmm. as an amateur. I can only imagine those of you listening with some actual training in these sciences. It's just amazing stuff. What's amazing is how they detected it too. This isn't something, it's this is tiny stuff. They couldn't really observe it. So what they did was they, they changed the genome of the mouse a little bit so that every time a muscle twitched, it would give off light. And they were able to set up a camera and capture just the light and determine how often the muscles twitched, which, you know, activated. And just by the amount of light that was given off, they could tell, hey, this is like the real deal here. We're growing the real stuff now. So I was in uh, the museum in Connecticut, the Air Museum, which is at the airport. It's uh, it's your typical giant air museum. It's not terribly organized. There's just stuff everywhere. Every airport should have an air museum. I think that so, is too. brilliant, and yeah. you often will, well, not often, but occasionally end up with five hours to kill in a boring right. building. You wonder, You can do that in Hartford. If you have a few hours in Hartford, Connecticut, and you don't know what to do, I don't know that you can't really walk there, but it's a very short cab ride. And if you've got a few hours, yeah, head over to the Air Museum. It is, uh, it's huge, re- relatively speaking, to small museums. They have lots of aircraft. And I was walking around there, and I saw this thing. It looked like... It was a a case, a giant case with all kinds of knobs and switches and a joystick. And it looked like a dashboard from a plane that had been taken out of a plane and put into a big suitcase. And then I saw it was attached to a wire. And if you follow the wire, it leads to a helicopter. But the helicopter is strange. There's no place to sit. This is actually probably the first working drone aircraft that the military had come up with. And it was a naval vessel. This is what's strange. Yeah, didn't the Navy have the first Air Force, though? I well, before there was an Air Force, there were, the Navy was the ones making airships. Yes, because yes, Because dirigibles, correct. you that's go correct, from a, yes. a boat to a flying boat yep. to a plane. So, well, they already got the flying boat. Give them the plane. Then it gets spun off. That's right. This is what happened with Laverne and Shirley, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Same idea. That's right. And, you know, it made sense. I mean, obviously, there are naval flyers. Uh, aircraft carrier pilots aren't in the Air Force. They're in the Navy. Uh, and that's kind of the situation with this thing. This lived on destroyers. It was a portable system designed to be flown off of destroyers, where obviously there is not a runway on a destroyer. This is a smaller naval vessel. And there would just be a little platform that the helicopter would sit on and then they would fly it off the ship, and it could go, you know, a mile or two away from the ship, and it would drop torpedoes and depth charges on submarines. And this is the 50s until the late 60s. Yeah. I've got a photo here from 1969, and it does look like something out of the James Bond of it that totally era. It totally does. It's and a very cool, hip-looking sucker. It's For a little tiny helicopter, it could pick up two full-size torpedoes. I mean, it's a lot of weight, and it had the advantage of having no pilots. And it turns out that almost every one of these things, which is called the, what is the official name here, the Gyrodyne QH-50-Dash, you can Google that. Every one of them, almost everyone, was destroyed, but with no loss of life of the Americans. I, I can't speak to the, the effectiveness the of the submarine. <laughs> uh, there may not have. Well, been this a, was in response yeah. to how vicious the wolf pack of yeah. the the Germans was. Uh, the Ice Dragon program, the Wolf Pack program, the the underwater right. warfare of that particular era, particularly the Germans, was so effective. Absolutely. We were. Die, we were d- d- desperate. We only beat the wolf packs by making ships really fast. We're like, oh, they're out there killing our ships. Make more ships. You know, yeah, we were, it's an arms race. It was. It was like the you know rabbits are eaten by everything, but they reproduce so quickly they're there. That's how we treated ships. So this thing. Now, if you think about this, you're in a destroyer and you know there's a submarine out there. 
but oh damn, it's a hundred yards off the starboard bow. You got to like send the ship out, turn around, try to cross over the top of the thing. But if you have this helicopter, suddenly you're in this one or two mile wide circle. And you can kill anything in that circle. I mean, this was a major advance. And it was a major advance until the guided missile. Right. And now you have a guided missile is debatably a drone. Yeah. Depending on how, it's just a matter of how guided it is. Right. Defines it as a drone. uh, How actively you can adjust it in flight is the line. So once you have a guided missile, this was never a terribly effective program. It was always kind of in a beta stage, if yeah. you will. And we didn't have a war where we had submarine warfare going on while these things were active. We were just so yeah. desperate to have anything that we took beta because if yeah. that warfare cranked up again, right. it was so debilitating to us, so damaging yes. to us in its prime. We fear same reason we still stockpile for huge armies now in this country. Right. At least. We have lots of tanks. We have nowhere to use them. But we've got suddenly Khrushchev's yeah. going to wake up from the dead and reinstall <laughs> right. an army, and we're going to have to go fight yeah. in trenches. It's a little bit in more France. likely than it was last week. But yeah. Well, okay. <laughs> <laughs> the news is changing. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, trench warfare is going to come back. It, uh, nations fighting nations. We're yeah. going to rack it. Yeah, it, you never know. And the the great fear of any military leader is well, better to need it and not have it. Yes, you know, have it and not need it than need it and not have it. Is, is sort of their idea. Now they didn't they didn't call these things drones back then because they're not autonomous. There was a guy driving the thing. It couldn't fly by itself. You know, it was on a tether, honestly. They, it wasn't radio. It was it had radios, but it wasn't radio controlled. So it isn't exactly the same as the drones we have today that can fly for days. Un, they just do it, and then they can send a signal, hey, I found what you're looking for. Should I kill it? Uh, it's a little different than that, but still a very cool thing, and they actually have one at the Air Museum in Hartford that you can go up and just see. I'm just hoping that uh, Jeff Bezos from Amazon buys these yeah. and uses them to deliver my deodorant well, you know, from let's, Amazon.com. Let's, let's do a little sidebar here. We're talking about April Fool's, and when Amazon says that they're going to start delivering packages with drones, I'm thinking April Fool's, because while it's technically possible... How practical is that, really? You've got your dog on the porch. This drone comes by, and it's going to leave you a package. Depending on your dog, that isn't a good scene. True, true. I think Bezos is working five to ten years out. He said five. He's being optimistic. Most people say ten. Now, in ten years, what can change? We know that he knows that 85% of his packages ordered and delivered weigh less than X pounds. Yes. They're five, five, six pounds. Easily packaged, delivered by a drone. Easily Mm -hmm. within the weight limit of a drone. How much cheaper are drones going to get? How much better? How much more intelligent? They'll get good. And you don't really need it to come to your yard. If I go to the 7-Eleven, they have those Amazon drop boxes yeah, there already. that makes sense. So it could just have a little landing pad up there. The guy goes upstairs just like he does now. Right. When UPS drops off the Amazon at 7-Eleven on my app. That's a really slick thing if you haven't used it. The drop box at 7-Eleven is a cool idea. You get a notification on your phone. There's your code. You beam it to the box. It opens. Yep. You can pick it up 24 hours a day. So as a stopgap measure, if everything else aligns except for the dog, so say drones get cheap enough, 85% of what you order is still under X pounds, say yep. under, under five, six pounds. Then I just drop it at 7-Eleven and I've already got half hour delivery. The alert right. goes off on your phone, stop by your neighborhood convenience store and pick up yeah, your razor blades. That's one, that's phase one for him. And even if that happens... That's a huge boon. It I think is. that's what he's thinking. Mm-hmm. It's worth investing in. And honestly, when he took that reporter from 60 Minutes Around, how much is that R&D department costing them? Oh. Five or six million, yeah. then they're done. They have a guy on salary yeah. sitting there every day working on so this problem, waiting on technology. Yeah. It's, it's not a huge <laughs> investment for them. 
And it is kind of a wait and see and plan in R and D phase. It's a fun white paper, and he is a nerd. Let's not oh, forget. Oh, he is. I've met the guy. I met him at TED uh, in two thousand seven, where I met everybody. The biggest horse laugh you have ever heard. It's unbelievable. But if you gave me you know. billions of dollars, I would also have robots <laughs> delivering yeah. Nintendo Why cartridges. The, heck not? <laughs> the New Yorker brings us the exciting headline: A scientific breakthrough lets us see the beginning of time. Yeah, that's all. An article by, that's it, you know, Tuesday. Yeah. Uh, Lawrence Krauss, a theoretical physicist and director of the Origins product, Project at Arizona State University, party school, <laughs> wrote A Universe from Nothing, Why There Is Something Rather Than Nothing, which is a great book if you haven't had a chance mm-hmm. to read, yep. why, why There Is Something Rather Than Nothing. Pick it up. Fantastic, fantastic pop side book. Mm-hmm. He has now found, and good luck explaining this. I'm going to link the article yeah. in the show notes so you can, you can read it. Uh, it, it's a huge, huge deal for theoretical physicists if it stands up to peer review. Right. That's always important. This is uh, gravitational waves and distortions within the cosmic microwave background radiation. Right. Which is the echo of the Big Bang. And one of the greatest pieces of evidence ever acquired ah, from a theory. It was a predictive yeah. thing that if the Big Bang happened, then we will find this. Right. And then in 92 or whenever it was. Yeah. We conclusively found it. So it's right. a great, great example of why we know the Big Bang to be real. Yeah, you know, because pe- we found a great piece of evidence existing all all over the universe. People without a science background think the Big Bang is a, is this fantastical idea that's like, well, there was nothing, and then there was something. It's magic. Well, no, it's actually what the evidence points to. I don't know anyone who particularly likes the Big Bang enough to make up stuff about it. It's just that, geez, all this evidence points to everything being in one space that suddenly expanded. And these gravitational waves, they make sense. They make everything else fit together. I mean, they're, they're incorporating quantum effects here. Let me give you a couple you sentences know, from, the, from the article. I think this sort of summarizes what we're, what we're getting at here. If the discovery announced this morning, and this is uh, March of 2014, if it holds up, if it holds up, that's in the article. Very important. It will allow us to peer back to the very beginning of time. A million, billion, 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 <laughs> billion, billion. That's actually in the article. Yes, it is. Times closer to the Big Bang than any previous direct observation and will allow us to explore the fundamental forces of nature on a scale 10,000 billion times smaller than can be probed at the Large Hadron Collider. Yeah, that's all. That is a significant <laughs> jump in our understanding if it holds up to peer review. Right. So yeah, they you know they've they've spent a lot of money on this, and they these these people aren't like a couple of guys in their basement who are saying, "Hey, we've invented cold fusion. Pay attention to us." These are the real deal. These are the guys with the big funding, and they would not have announced this unless they were pretty sure. But until a few other people can reproduce what they found, it's just. Looking good. At this As point. they mentioned in the article, extraordinary claims require extraordinary evidence. Carl Sagan. And so this is an extraordinary claim that it you is. have found this very important piece of what could be evidence, but we wait to see because it could just be coincidence and a lot of wishful thinking. If you're yeah. a theoretical physicist, this is something you really want to find. Yeah. And even the most ardent scientists, even the most hardened skeptics, are subject to their emotions from time to time. Oh, absolutely. And this is the kind of thing that people uh, people in this field who understand this completely, this is their lifetime event. It is that big of a deal. But w- the media can't really do much with it because it isn't accessible. You know, the media can only say, yeah, some new evidence was found and there's big numbers and stuff. Um, here, here, here's another one for you. I think, I think this will sum it up, right? Monday's announcement heralds the possible beginning of, the, of a new era. 
where even such cosmic existential questions are becoming accessible to experiment. And and that's why we have Lawrence Krauss. I mean, I've met Lawrence. He's a he's a really nice guy. He is uh he's not quite a Carl Sagan, but he does have the ability to take complex topics and make them accessible to the lay people. He's the guy who wrote The Physics of Star Trek, and if you haven't read that book, you know, it's, it's old now, but it's it's interesting stuff and this is the kind of stuff we need to figure out in order to get to Star Trek. From New York Times Magazine, a study from the Institute of Bisexuality. I'm sorry, the American Institute of Bisexuality. Yeah, we do it different over here. We do. <laughs> Bisexuals with bacon. The I'm American okay Institute of Bisexuality. Uh, they, they fund scientific studies on bisexuals, I would imagine, in America. Makes sense. Uh, this is, I'm quoting from the article, uh, works to combat damaging beliefs about bisexual people, including that they are actually gay, not bi, or that they're just experimenting and going through a phase or that they are unfaithful partners. I've heard Ooh. all of these uh, prejudices. Yeah, oh yeah, me too. Any, anytime you mention any sort of celebrities, bisexual or whatever, yeah. and, and going through a phase, and lug, lesbian until graduation. I have to mention Dan Savage here, because he famously came out against bisexuality as a concept. He thought they were just gay people who were confused. And then reversed his position. He did, he, he did. Now, he now, because that was his experience. He yes. identified as bisexual because he felt it was a sort of a stepping stone of... It was a nice way to come out to people mm-hmm. before then coming out as as full on gay, as completely gay, as Kinsey scale six gay. Yeah, and and his his sexuality is a little more fluid than a Kinsey six on either side. Yeah, because that was his experience, and that's the problem. We do that, right? We do that. We map our experience to others. Mm-hmm. So when you say there are two genders, and then Facebook lists fifty, right? You're surprised. Wait, and they're just male and female? No, of course there isn't. In an infinitely complex human mind. Right. Bonobos are more complicated than that. Yeah. Why wouldn't we be? Yeah, everything's a continuum. This we Tim Minchin has a great song called The Fence. Google that right now. Turn off the podcast, go to Google, and Google Tim Minchin The Fence. It's a song all about how we must make everything black and white. And nothing is black and white. And it's, I'll tell you, you need to read the New York Times article. We'll link to this. The New York Times article, this survey found some fascinating things about sexuality. Uh, a few examples. Uh, I'm going to quote here. Uh, they, so they experiment by, watch, by having you watch porn. That's not a Ooh. quote yet. So they have you watch porn, and they see if when men into the picture, do you have an inversion? Because that would okay. test for uh, homosexuality versus bisexuality, and okay. how much mm-hmm. you have an aversion, et cetera, et cetera. Now, gay-identified men, on the other hand, may be ones who do not like when a lady joins in, and a bisexual may just be a gay person who's less lady-averse. So now we have a subtle shade of homosexuality, or... It could be a third or tertiary sexual preference entirely. Yes. And this study tries to drill down, and it could be an individual by individual. It could be. So two bisexuals standing side by side have different sexual preferences. Yep. Bisexual one is a gay man who is just not lady-averse, so a fluid sexuality. Bisexual two, a third, a third, (laughs) uh, from from the two versions of of hetero-gay bisexual. Mm -hmm. A third variant there. So even a bisexual talking to a bisexual may be coming from completely different areas. Right. That's really cool. Also, a survey of 394 men and women found that there are almost as many men who identify as bisexual, queer, or unlabeled. So that was your choice that would put you into that category. After identifying as gay earlier in life, then there are men who first identified as bi, then gay. So going back. Both, both ways, right, pardon right, right. the pun, but yeah. going in both directions 
gay to bisexual or in Dan Savage's bisexual to gay example. Yeah, that's that stereotype that, you know, we see in college is that women are women are bisexual in college or lesbian in college and then they grow out of it. You know, it's a stereotype. It does not describe everybody. Well, Lisa Diamond of the University of Utah originally assumed that women are just more sexually fluid than men. Thus, that's yeah. the reason mm-hmm. that they would engage in bisexual mm-hmm. behavior for fun and then stop it later in life. Mm-hmm. Uh, lug lesbian until graduation. The Times reports, however, researchers are finding now men's attraction to each other can also be pretty complex, which yeah. is a well, fun yeah. and not heralded in our society right. view of the male sexuality. We tend to, I, th- I think anyway, as our stereotype, be classified more as you're straight, you're gay, that's it. Yeah. Well, men do tend to be a little bit more black and white in our society yes. also in their thought. Whereas women are given a bit more fluidity, mm-hmm. that appears to be merely societal bias, or at least more societal bias than we think, according to this study. Yeah. If you're at all interested in any sort of sexuality at all, you need to read this article. It's really well done. And then if you can get a hold of the actual papers, please Better. do and shoot them to us. Getting that stuff without a couple thousand yeah, dollars in, in subscriptions butt. every year is difficult. No I find it fascinating. The complexity of the human mind when applied to what is a simple act of procreation, what we can do with that makes it a much more interesting recipe to me. It does. but and, and this is something that bothers me a little bit, is that this article is focused on how do we properly label people? How do we... And Well, that's science, yeah, though. That is, is our and, lot And I life. don't have a problem with that. Put the bug in a drawer, put a pin on oh, it, yeah, give it a Latin right. name. And, and I'm that's good our, with that. That's our downfall. That's how we communicate about things and how we can come up with new ideas. But in society... I don't care if somebody's gay or bi or a, or queer or gender unknown right. or whatever. They get, I don't care. Your label doesn't matter to me. It, you know, in practical terms, all that matters to me is are we potential sex partners? That's it. It does. It does That's help on dating sites, though. If oh, you can sure. tell me what you you're looking labels. for. Yeah. What do you and want? Like, uh, you know. something the author points out on this article is that this provides some science backing. So when I'm arguing against the gay cures. Oh, I'm now not true, yeah. arguing from a moral perspective right. of let a guy do what a guy let a guy do what a guy wants to do with yeah. a guy let a girl what a blah blah blah. I'm no longer arguing against just religiosity versus a humanist morality. Right. I'm now arguing no no. I'm sorry. Studies have proven you wrong. This is nice that I have a study at least to hold in my hands and wave yeah, at them as they true. wave their holy book at me. It is one thing to say God prohibits this behavior, you know, whatever, I know nothing of this God you speak of, if you say that, whatever. It is a completely different thing to say, you're just confused and broken and we can fix you. That is dangerous, bad, and proven wrong. Our continuing semi-regular series, wrong. Wrong. Things about which we were inaccurate. You go first this week. Oh, okay, so I have personal experience with this and Half the people who are listening to this are going to call me a liar, and that's okay. But here's the deal. If you go south of the equator, toilets do not reverse direction due to the Coriolis I've heard that in my entire life as just fact. And here's a story. I went to the equator. I've been to the equator a few times. I was in Ecuador. Where the water doesn't move. If you go around the equator, it doesn't go either direction. That would be the logic, right? You can't flush the toilet. So when you go to the equator, they have parks that you can go to, and they do equator tricks. Now, the last time I was there was with a group of skeptic folks, and one of the guides heard us talking, because we could see the stuff they had. They had these bowls of water with holes in them. It was basically a toilet on a stand. And because... (laughs) No, that's what it was. And because they heard us... The least popular attraction. Yes, the toilet on a stand. And they would demonstrate this for people to demonstrate how... 
on one side of the equator, like a foot on one side of the equator, it would go one way, and a foot on the other, it would go the other way. But they heard us talking, and they changed their patter. Instead, they said, if the Coriolis effect could affect smaller systems like a toilet, it would look like this. Because ah. the Coriolis effect is real. For hurricanes, it does not affect small bodies of water. And if you see a sink drain or a bathtub drain or a toilet going in the opposite direction, that's either because the shape of the bowl is different or the water coming into it came in at a different direction. That's it. We continue with our toilet theme. I coincidentally <laughs> picked... The word crap did not originate from the back formation of the British plumber, Thomas Crapper. Yeah. Thomas Crapper was an important plumber who did a lot of innovations. Yeah. It's just a coincidence. He didn't get his surname. It's Cropper. It changed into Crapper. It was harvesting crops like a smith. Right. The Cropper becomes Crapper later on. It is pure, unadulterated coincidence that he went on to be a plumber. <laughs> or maybe if you call yourself Mr. Crapper your entire life, you tend towards plumbing as a profession. Well, yeah, and his name used to be on some equipment, and that, that kind of led into it. You'd, like, go and the toilet would say crapper on it. But, no, yeah, that's absolutely right. It is not related. And if anyone asks, you can say you've been officially curioed, at least for the week. <laughs> for, for this week. Yeah. For this week. Thank you for spending time with us. Thank you for downloading. As always, please, please, please tell a friend. We're cresting upwards of, of 12, 13 listeners. <laughs> a baker's dozen, I tell you. <laughs> it's more than that. Incredible success. <laughs> What more? 2022? Uh, no. We're well into the hundreds by <laughs> now. Woohoo! All right. <laughs> Doubling the average Chicago classroom. <laughs> Until next week from Freak Show and Tell, I'm Tom Britton. I'm Jeff Wagg. All that leaves now is the answer to this week's puzzle. So, which U.S. coin was the first one to have the dollar sign on it? Well, you would be correct if you thought the dollar coin, but it wasn't until 2007 that they put the dollar sign on there, and it was only for the, the new Sacagawea dollars, not the ones from the two, early 2000s, the new ones and the president dollar coins, all of which have been discontinued. Oh.